But Rob Reno is uh, a, a dear friend of mine. I'm so thankful to have him as a friend. But he's also a dear friend of us here at Buffalo Free and has a heart for us here. So Rob, would you come and share the message that God has put on your heart? May we welcome Rob. Thanks, Greg. Sure appreciate you. Well, good morning, everyone. It is a privilege to be with you and bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Gospel Fellowship Church in uh, Wheaton, Illinois, our home church. And it's been a good weekend together. We started off Friday night. We did a visionary marriage date night here. And yesterday morning, we uh, talked about parenting and grandparenting. Uh, then yesterday afternoon, we talked about uh, parenting adult kids and building better relationships with those adult children. Let me introduce my family to you with a picture. There is my wife, Amy. We will be celebrating 25 years of marriage this summer, and we have got seven blessings in our life. Uh, four boys and three girls, two in college, two in high school, two in elementary school, and one in preschool. So big family, big happiness, big problems. You have to put yourself in my shoes for a moment. I live with eight sinful, messed up people. And that, as you can imagine, makes my life very difficult. Uh, technically, there would be nine sinners in the family with me as sinner in chief, but I prefer to focus on their problems. Amen? <laughs> now, maybe your home is different, uh, but in my home, we, we have conflicts every day. We have conflicts every day. Uh, we, we, we sin and struggle at home more than anywhere else. Uh, probably combined, cumulative struggles everywhere else are going to be less than the struggles uh, in, in our home. And th this morning, I'm going to talk to you about uh, such a vital issue for our, for our families. Because we struggle so much in our family relationships, because we really can almost not hardly get through a day without conflict and sin and problems in the house. This means that the Christian family has to become an expert in giving and receiving forgiveness. The Christian family has to become an expert in giving and receiving forgiveness. The, the reason for this is that we all want to uh, see God bring about progress and change in our life. There's all sorts of things in our lives that we would like to be different, right? like to be more mature in this area and more stable in, in, in that area. And one of the things that I've seen in my life and then through our ministry is that a lot of Christians are stuck where they are because they've got a ball and chain around their life. And the ball and chain around their life is unforgiveness, bitterness, it's anger, it's resentment. And bitterness and anger and resentment and unforgiveness are our tools of the enemy to keep us in, in bondage, to keep us trapped. And so, in order to have the kind of personal lives that God wants us to have, and in order to have the families that God wants us to have, we've got to become an absolute expert in giving and receiving forgiveness. Now, we're going to get into this subject in God's Word in a little bit of an unusual uh, place. I'm going to walk through a history with you this morning in Scripture that does not get a lot of attention, but one that has a lot to teach us. 
It's the history of King David and a little guy named Shimei. And I'd like you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. The history of David and a man named Shimei. Now, as you're turning there, let me set the stage for you. David's son Absalom has started a revolt against his father, King David. And things have gotten so bad that David, king of Israel, has to flee for his life. He's got to flee from the city of Jerusalem. So David is on the run with his men because his son Absalom is mounting a military revolt. So this is where we pick up the history in 2 Samuel 16.5. When King David came to Baharim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, we're in verse 5, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gera, and as he came, he cursed continually. So first of all, we learn that Shimei is from the house of Saul. What might that tell us about Shimei's attitude toward King David? Not good, right? Not good. And so he's coming out, and he, he's, as he's coming out, he's cursing, and he's specifically cursing King David. Shimei's running for his life. Shimei's spewing swears at him. Verse 6, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King David. And all the people and all the mighty men were on his right and on his left. And Shimei said as he cursed, get out, get out, you man of blood you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, that would be his family, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Verse 9, then Abishai, Abishai is one of David's uh, mighty men and, and, and bodyguards, Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and take off his head. I'm not sure he had Brooklyn accent, but I just, it's just this guy's first, first instinct is let me take this person's head off, please, for, for what he's saying. Okay, skip down to verse 11. David said to Abishai and all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now might this Benjaminite. In other words, guys, my own son wants to kill me. Why, why am I going to allow myself to be bothered by this little pipsqueak who wants to kill me too? I got bigger problems in my life than, than this little guy. Verse 11, leave him alone, David said. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So, David preaches a nice little sermon here to his, uh, to his men. Look, this doesn't bother me. Perhaps if I put up with the insults I'm receiving from Shimei, uh, maybe I'm going to get bonus points with God. Maybe I'm going to get a blessing later on. So, the, the good and kind-hearted King David has fled to Jerusalem. He's taken his bubble bath we, for, we fast forward the story, uh, the, the revolt gets suppressed, King David is now going to return to Jerusalem uh, as king, and we pick it up in uh, 2 Samuel 19, 15. So you've got to flip forward a little bit, pick up in 2 Samuel 19, 15, David coming back, 
to retake his throne. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei hurried down to, with the men to meet King David. Now, you might expect we might have a little different attitude from Shimei at this point. Shimei, son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, let not my Lord hold me guilty or even remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down and meet my Lord the king. So we have quite a different uh, attitude now from Shimei. Now Abishai, remember the Brooklyn guy, he then speaks up. He says, shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? In other words, let me cut off his head now, please. Okay. But David says to, to Abishai, his guard here, look, what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary for me? Should anyone be put to death in Israel today? Do I not know that I'm the king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So David releases him from the crime committed against him. David uh, promises Shimei he's, he's not going to kill him. And so once again, we have David, the, the generous and, and merciful king. This is a day for celebrations. This is not a day for executions. Uh, a man like David does not take offense easily. And that seems like a quite a, a, a nice, tidy wrap-up to this history and, and this uh, aspect of David's life. And we would think as the biblical history goes forward, we would not hear about Shimei again, but that's unfortunately not the case. Fast forward in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 2, 1 Kings chapter 2. We now go to the very end of David's life. David uh, is on his deathbed, and he is about to impart his final blessing and his final instructions to Solomon, who is going to succeed him as king. So 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. When David's time drew near to die, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your son pays close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack to have a man on the throne of Israel. This is uh, one of the great father blessings in the Bible. One of the great father, like deathbed charges to, to the son, follow the Lord, be faithful to him, like receive the, the baton of faith, that is being passed to you, if only those were David's last words, because those are pretty good. I, I think they're pretty good. His last words are actually recorded for us beginning in verse 8. And there is also with you, talking to Solomon now, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Baharim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. 
But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, son, do not hold him guiltless, for you're a wise man. You'll know what you ought to do with him. Bring his gray head down with blood. Then David died and went with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And one of Solomon's very first acts as king is to confront Shimei and drag his bloody head down to the ground. I can't tell you everything that went on here in David's heart and David's mind, but what I can tell you is even on David's deathbed, this offense is on his mind. This offense is on his heart. You see, anger, bitterness, unforgiveness doesn't just go away. You know, people say time heals all wounds. Well, that's just not true. You, you get, I come up, you, you get a big chop on your arm with a big knife, and you say, oh, time will heal that. No, time is going to get that infected and gangrene. You're going to lose your arm and you're going to die, okay? Now, maybe a paper cut, no big deal. Big wounds just don't heal with time. Now, it might be proper to say God can heal all wounds over time. I think that's a true statement. But you see, a lot of Christians, what we do when we get hurt, especially in our, our families, sometimes we wrap it in this sort of Christian-y sort of, well, I'm just going to let that go. I'm just going to sort of move on. And there, there may be some wisdom with that with small stuff. But a lot of times we have been deeply hurt and we just take the high road and we don't actually do any spiritual work of forgiveness. That's what I'm going to talk to you about this morning. We don't actually do any spiritual work of forgiveness and that seed of unforgiveness becomes a seed of bitterness which grows roots and grows up to do great damage in our life. This is the scripture now I want to walk through very carefully with you from Hebrews chapter 12. Look at, I've got it on the screen. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, or see to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and to defile many. See, when someone in your family hurts you, the, the basic sinful response, one is to strike back, the other is just to hold on to the hurt, to hold on to the, the bitterness. And what happens is if a seed of bitterness gets planted, if a seed of bitterness gets planted and it doesn't get dealt with, what's that seed going to do? It's going to grow roots, and the bitter root's going to grow up, and bitterness always does two things. It's going to grow up to do two things. What's the first thing? It's going to grow up to, number one on the Scripture, cause trouble, and number two, defile many. It's going to cause trouble in your life, and it's going to spread. Any of you have a, a friend who really struggles with bitterness? They're just a bitter person, and they've got their list of bad people. You can hardly spend an hour with them without being sucked in, right, to, to join them in their bitterness toward other people. Now, God's using an analogy here, of course, for how plants grow, okay? He's talking about seeds of bitterness and roots and things like that. I was preaching in Malaysia a number of years ago, and uh, in Malaysia, they have the, the fastest growing tree in the world. Uh, it's called the Albizia falcata tree, and uh, you take the Albizia falcata plant, sort of in the bamboo family of trees, and uh, you plant this seed, uh, you water it for a year, and nothing happens. You water it for a second year, nothing happens. Third year, nothing happens. Fourth year, nothing happens. In the fifth 
year, the tree grows 30 feet in 90 days. 30 feet in 90 days. It cracks. You can't, it's not like a cartoon. It doesn't grow like that, you know, but it, but it, you can, it, it cracks because it's growing so quickly. Hopefully you didn't like, uh, you know, forget and put your gazebo there or something because it's, it's coming up. And I think that this is a, a picture, again, God's giving us an agricultural analogy in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. I believe it's, it's really a picture of how hurt and bitterness and resentment work in our life. Something happens in our families. We don't go through a biblical forgiveness process, which is what I'm going to share with you today. A seed gets planted, and three months later, one year later, ten years later, outblasts something ugly. Because now this tree in Malaysia is, you know, I said nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. Is that true? Is nothing happening for five years? What's happening? Yeah, crazy roots, right, in, in, in all directions. This thing is gathering strength, gathering nutrients, getting ready to blast this thing up uh, out of the ground. And the same thing's happening with seeds of bitterness, seeds of anger, seeds of unforgiveness in our life. Outblasts depression, outblasts addiction, outblasts violence, you name it. Now listen, I'm not saying that every ugly thing that, that, that bursts forth from a person's life is tied to unforgiveness. There's a lot of causes for, for the things that we really struggle with. But what I am saying is that any seed of bitterness that's left alone and watered by time is going to grow up to, remember, what's the first one? Cause trouble and defile many defile many. Let me show you another important scripture on this, probably the, the simplest and most direct passage in God's Word on, on forgiveness. It comes from Colossians 3.13. It just says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. God wants to compare our forgiveness of others with His forgiveness of us. So, I want you to imagine a, an old-fashioned set of scales Okay, I don't know, we don't really use them anymore, I guess, but you, know, you put heavy things on one side, light things on another. So I want you to imagine over here, and this is a little personal, so forgive me, I want you to think about somebody in your family who's done some things to, to hurt you over the years, offend you over the years, and for some of us, those hurts and offenses are very, very serious. But I want you to, uh, as, as difficult as it might be, to pile up everything this person's done against you. Okay, it could be a brother, sister, mother, father, husband, wife, son, or daughter. So I want you to make a big stinky pile here. Okay? Now over here on this side of the scales, I want you to pile up every sin you've ever committed against God. Every thought, word, deed, action, inaction. You got it? Every single solitary one. Could you please point to the heavy side for me? Good. I think you all did pretty well, right? Kind of, oh, Lord, well, if you just say it like that. Now, this is not to say that these things aren't big and serious and painful and real. It's just saying they're small compared to that, right? So, what God says is, I've made a sacrifice of my son for you to be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Now, I want you to go and be like me, and I want you to forgive your dad. I want you to forgive your wife. I want you to forgive your daughter for this stuff over here. This is something I really wasn't planning on talking about as I prepared for today, but I, I'm going to. One of the things that I've heard many times over the years uh, as a pastor and in ministry is I don't believe that it's possible for God to forgive me. 
because I've sinned too much, sinned too often, sinned too big for God to forgive me. And, and that person who thinks like that, uh, they're half right. You're like, wait a second, that's not what you're supposed to say. Uh, what I mean by that is that that person sees their sin rightly. They, they see the severity of the, their sin. They see the significance of their sin. They recognize that there's nothing that, that can be done to undo what they've done. And they also understand that they deserve to suffer for it. And so they, they don't think there's any possible way it can be undone. That part they have right. So they see their sin as big, correct, but their view of Christ is too small. Because when a person says, I don't think God can forgive me for what I've done, what they're actually saying is, I don't think Jesus paid a sufficient price. I don't think Jesus did enough to cover my sin. It's, it's very interesting. The Bible tells us that Jesus obeyed God sufficiently, perfectly to, to pay for our sin. But the Bible also tells us that He suffered enough to pay for our sin. Did you know there's only two places in the Bible where God tells us what Jesus looked like physically? There's only two places. They're both in the book of Isaiah. One of them is in Isaiah chapter 53. It says, Isaiah 53, talking about Jesus, says, there was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Think about that. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. You know, most people, we, we, try, we all look very differently, right? We try to be charitable with people's appearance. Uh, so even if a person perhaps isn't uh, incredibly attractive, we find one nice feature. You know, he has nice hands. Or... Um, <laughs> She, she has wonderful eyes. Just, just being charitable, right? God made us all, all differently. The Bible says there was not a single physical feature that Jesus had that was attractive. Now, it feels very sacrilegious to say Jesus was unattractive. I, I don't know how else to read that. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. That's one thing it tells us about his appearance. The second thing that it tells us about his appearance, this is Isaiah chapter 52, and it speaks to Jesus' appearance on the cross. And when it talks about Jesus' appearance on the cross, it says he was marred beyond human likeness, beyond that of the children of mankind. Now, what does that mean? It means if you're there on crucifixion day, you see at a distance perhaps two human beings hanging here, you would say, what's that in the middle? Marred beyond human likeness. Now, why would God tell us that? Jesus suffered enough. Suffered enough. Paid the full price for every single sin, past, present, and future. But then when it comes to forgiving our family members, I'll be honest with you, I think that some of the, the conversations in the Christian world about forgiveness are, are kind of superficial and pat answery. My, my biggest challenge with forgiveness had to do with my father. My father was not a Christian. Neither one of my parents were Christians when I was born. My mom came to Christ when I was a baby. My mother was my father's fourth wife, and my dad had um, affairs in the marriage, and the discovery of those affairs is what brought their marriage to an end after 18 years. I was 15 years old. And so, at the time, I got, you know, I had Christian friends who would tell me, well, Rob, you need to forgive your dad for what he's done. Now, is that good Christian advice or bad Christian advice? 
That's good Christian advice. And certainly everybody that said it to me meant very well. But it came across pretty patty answery to me. Came across pretty superficial to me. What it felt like, no one was saying this, it's just the way I, I, I received it. What it felt like is, you see, down in your heart, there are these, you have anger, bitterness, hatred, and resentment. And you see, these are just little light switches. And what you do is you go down there, wherever there is, and, and you turn those off and you give them to Jesus and you're good to go. Right? But do, you, do we really think, like, if, if anger, bitterness, hatred, and resentment were little light switches you can go down and turn off and give to Jesus, wouldn't we all have already done that if it was that simple? You know, and, and people get just so confused about what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. One, a couple of things that forgiveness is not, okay? Forgiveness, you can forgive someone and not trust them. You can forgive someone and not trust them. So your mom gives you a call and you're talking to her and you share, hey, we're, we're going through some financial troubles right now, some financial stress. And your mom shares the prayer request for you on Facebook. Uh, which would be pretty inappropriate, right? Taking your personal information and putting it out there to her Facebook friends. And uh, so she cut. Now, in your heart, you could completely forgive her for that. And next week, she calls for an update that she can post online about your financial situation. You would be very right to say, hey, mom, listen, I, I, I have forgiven you for that. I think that was pretty inappropriate, but I'm not going to talk to you about my finances anymore. You see, I, I've forgiven my mom. I, I'm not harboring bitterness, anger, resentment toward her, but I'm not going to trust her until she demonstrates trustworthiness in that particular area. Another thing, and this is a huge one, you know, uh, forgiving someone does not mean having warm fuzzies for them. Let me say it this way. Forgiving someone does not mean you have to like them. Did you know there's no commandment in the Bible that you have to like anybody? It's very freeing, actually. <laughs> uh, like, like is a warm feeling you have toward nice people. People treat you nice, you like them. Now, you do have to love the people you don't like, according to God, right? But, but, but God does not command you, thou shalt have warm feelings for mean people. So you can forgive someone who's toxic and abusive and mean to you without having warm feelings for them. Now, what my pastor had to do when I was in high school is had to walk me through a, a, a not pat answery, not superficial, but biblical path and process toward forgiveness. And that's what I want to walk you through uh, this morning. So I want to talk to you about three phases of biblical forgiveness. Three phases of biblical forgiveness. If you want God to break that ball and chain of bitterness, anger, and resentment in your life, I want to challenge you to walk through these three phases. The first one is forgiveness with your will. Forgiveness with your will. It's a choice. It's an act of the will, obedience to Christ. The commandment, Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So if it's a commandment, there must be a volitional choice involved. And we've got these problems at this point. Well, I don't feel ready to forgive. This person has not asked for my forgiveness. This person has not changed their behavior. All those things are very real. They're very painful. They're just irrelevant right now. Your feelings, their behavior, their attitude are not connected to God's command for you to forgive them. So here's what I would encourage you to do. You might need to do it this afternoon or tomorrow. I want you to bring to mind, and we'll pray about this in a few minutes, I want you to bring to mind a family member uh, that you may have anger, bitterness, and resentment towards. 
and I want you to get out a piece of paper. This is all private, by the way. This is just between you and the Lord. You get out a piece of paper. Up at the top of the paper, you write, it hurt me when, it hurt me when, dot, dot, dot. And you just start writing down specific events that have happened, specific things that were said. And then you grit your teeth because you're going to have to pray through this against your feelings. And you're going to pray, okay, God, you want me to forgive my dad. I don't really feel like it. He doesn't deserve it. He hasn't asked for it, and I don't want to. But you tell me to, so fine, I'll do it. God, I choose to forgive my dad for this. I choose to forgive my sister for that. I choose to forgive my husband for this. You, you pray through that list, choosing with an act of your will to forgive. I want you to think of it like this. I want you to imagine that, that, that you're like a, a, an old-fashioned farm bucket, okay, like a wooden farm bucket. And over the years, your, uh, your father, your wife, your son has dropped uh, a lot of glops of hurt, okay, gross, sticky mud into that farm bucket, and now you are just full to the brim. That's why, by the way, when that family member does any little thing, you go, because you are full of that past stuff. So this first step of forgiveness with the will, it's like taking a hammer and slamming a hole in the bottom of the bucket and ripping that hammer out, and a knife down out of the bottom. So you went from 99% full to 95% full, but where's still most of the mud? Still in the bucket, right? Now we got a hole down there and we got a little uh, gap. We got a little relief. That's God's blessing for you. You'll experience that blessing right away. A little lightening of the load. But most of that junk is still left in the bucket and that takes us to phase two of the forgiveness process, which is forgiveness with your heart. Forgiveness with your heart. Jesus says forgiveness is not just a, a choice. He wants to forgive your brother from your heart. I believe that the heart is God's territory. And if you want your heart changed, that's not something you can manufacture. That's something that you need to ask God to do. So this phase of forgiveness is a daily prayer. God, I have chosen to forgive my dad. I've chosen to forgive my sister. But God, I cannot heal my heart. I cannot get rid of the anger and the bitterness and the resentment that I have. Only you can do that. So God, I ask that you would. Would you drain this bucket of the hatred, bitterness, and anger that I have toward this family member? Now, when it came to my father, I was in phase two for six years. Six years. Just praying, God, I don't want to hate my dad. I don't want to be bitter at my dad. I, th this hatred and bitterness and resentment, this is like a, this is a ball and chain around my life. This is a ball and chain around my faith. This is a ball and chain around my relationships. I don't want somebody else's bad behavior to, to be a little rain cloud following me around in my life. I want to be free from that. Six years, six years of praying, God, heal my heart of that anger, that bitterness, that resentment. I shared with you just a little bit about this yesterday. I need to do it briefly this morning. Uh, I, I remember very specifically, I was a junior in college. I had a... Um, I had an early morning class, like the crack of 11, and I was, uh, I was in the bathroom and shaving both my facial hairs, getting ready for class, and I was thinking about my dad. And I, what struck me in that moment, for the first time in years, the feelings in my heart toward my dad, instead of bitterness and anger, were compassion and sadness. 
compassion and sadness. God uh, brought back to my mind so many different things about, about my father. Um, he, I told you this yesterday, those of you who are there, I'll repeat it now. He was born in 1918. He was born in the flu epidemic of 1918. His mother died in childbirth with him. His father, maybe over grief at the loss of his wife, we don't know, didn't want him, couldn't take care of him. He was a preemie baby born at seven and a half months. Back then, that was a life-threatening situation. Spent the first year of his life in the hospital, University of Iowa. So your mom dies. Your dad doesn't want you. That first year of life, what a precious year. He's got nurses instead of a mom, nurses instead of a dad or a grandma or, or, or a grandpa. He then gets adopted by his aunt and his uncle, who were brother and sister, a single man and a single woman, brother and sister. They lived together for functional uh, purposes. They adopted him. He never saw a marriage, never saw a family. His father was an atheist. His adopted father was an atheist, told him over and over again, uh, Jesus was just a man. Don't ever forget that, Billy. That's my dad. Jesus was just a man. You know, where do you go to get wounds like my father's wounds healed? Your mother dies. Dad doesn't want you. Where do you go to get wounds like that healed? Starts with a J. Jesus, yeah. And your adopted father tells you, well, Jesus can't help you. My dad spends his whole life looking for women to love him. Four wives. Mistresses beyond what I know. Died with a picture of his mother at his side. Isn't that just sad? Just sad what God does. When God works this miracle of forgiveness in our hearts, it doesn't change what people did to us. It doesn't minimize the pain of what they caused and the things they did, but it shifts our heart toward them as God drains the anger and bitterness and helps us have a spirit of compassion for them. Okay, this third phase. Oh, a picture of my dad. I almost forgot to show you that. Let me talk to you about the third phase. It's reconciliation. Reconciliation. All right, who has to act in phase one? Who has to do something? We do, right? You're commanded to forgive. If you don't do it, it's not going to happen. Who has to act in phase two? God does, right? If God chooses not to answer your prayer, it ain't going to happen. Actually, I think that's a prayer he always chooses to answer. You know, when we pray, God sometimes says yes, no, or maybe. I think if you ask God to change your heart and get rid of anger and bitterness, I think it's always a yes, all right? might take some time, but I think it's always a yes. Who has to act? Who is the critical ingredient in reconciliation? Okay, I heard somebody say you or the other person or whatever. Um, I remember going to my father after going through this forgiveness process and saying, Dad, I want you to know I've forgiven you, you know, for cheating on mom and blowing up the family and stuff. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't say it quite that crassly, but that, that was the, the general idea. And so my atheist father, see, I came to him warm-heartedly, Dad, I, I, I've forgiven you, like, let's, let's move on. Um, he was furious, absolutely furious. Forgive me, I don't need your forgiveness. Was it wrong of me to do that? No, I don't think so. I, it's kind of like I'm throwing him a lifeline. Hey, Dad, I love you. Hey, Dad, I've forgiven you. He thought like a life preserver. He thought I was trying to beat him with a life preserver, okay, because of our different, uh, our different perspectives in spiritual life. Um, the person who has to act for reconciliation to take place is the offender, the offender. Ultimately, the offender has to come and ask for forgiveness. And this is one of the most difficult things about biblical forgiveness, is we have to accept the fact that reconciliation may not ever happen. 
God can take us all the way through phase one and phase two where we have forgiven our family member, where we have no hatred, bitterness, anger, and resentment. We have a cordial, functioning relationship with them, but the relationship is not reconciled because our family member has not come to us to ask for forgiveness. Now, when my father was 90 years old, God worked a miracle in his life, brought him to salvation in Christ. Two weeks before he died, my father asked for my forgiveness. Son, I'm so sorry for what I did. Sorry for the affairs and not being a good husband. Will you please forgive me? And I'm like, yes, yes, of course I forgive you. I forgave you 20 years ago. Remember when I came and told you? I for-? No. Uh, but you see, I, I couldn't. You see, forgiveness is a, is a gift. It has to be forced on someone. Let me share a, a reconciliation encouragement, especially as it relates to marriage. But honestly, I think it relates to all of our family family relationships. But I've seen this now too many times in marriage counseling, and I want to encourage you with it and, and challenge you with it. Let's think about, and I guess I'm mixing metaphors here, but let's think that about reconciliation, like the healing of a relationship as like the, a line in the middle, all right? That two people are at the line seeking healing in their relationship. And one thing that you'll hear people say is, well, it takes two, right, to, to make a relationship work. And that's not true. It only takes one for now. Someday it may take two. But right now, we need one who's at the reconciliation line. So I've seen this many times in marriage. Let's say we have a, a spouse. Let's say we have a wife who, who uh, is, is at the reconciliation line. She is invested in the marriage. She is pursuing the marriage. She wants the marriage to work. He is disconnected. His heart is hard. I'm not saying he's off uh, having extra relationships, but whatever. He's disconnected from the marriage, not interested, not pursuing healing reconciliation. Years go by in that state where she is pursuing, she is hopeful, she is holding fast, she's got hope, he's disconnected. And over time, her spirit gets ground down, and she loses hope, and she leaves the line. A week later, God does a miracle in the husband's heart, softens her heart to the Lord, his heart to the Lord, softens his heart toward his wife. He comes running to the reconciliation line where he knows his wife has been for 10 years. But where is she now? She just left a week ago. So now I'm in the pastor's office, okay? She's been meeting with me and my wife for 10 years, right? Now she's gone. Now he's there. And I'm like, okay, you, you stay right there. We got to go get her now. Okay, don't you go anywhere. And I look at this, I see this over and over again, and part of my reaction to that is, how sad. Isn't that just sad? We missed each other by a week. So, so what's, the, what's the message? If you're at the line, and you're holding fast with hope for that, that family relationship, and I, in, in this situation, I'm not talking about some 911 situation with abuse, abandonment, addiction, adultery. Those are... Those are uh, capital C crisis situations, and uh, you need to talk to your pastor and Christian counselor about that. But as a general rule, if you're holding at that line, ask for God to help you stay right there. And if you're the one who's been disconnected from your husband or your wife, your brother, sister, father, mother, son, or daughter, if you're the one who's been hard-hearted, repent today and sprint to that reconciliation line. What a tragedy it would be to miss your husband or your wife, to miss your father or mother, your brother or sister or son or daughter who's been pursuing that relationship with you. I'd like to close our time 
We'll sing some more in a little bit, but I'd like to close our time with, with some guided prayer. So if you could bow your heads, if you could close your eyes. I just want you to talk to God. This is just privately, you and the Lord. Just ask the Lord in prayer right now, am I in bondage to anger and unforgiveness? Do I have a ball and chain of bitterness around my heart? Just ask the Lord to reveal that to you. And it, another way to ask that prayer might be, just whisper this to the Lord just in your heart. God, bring to my mind someone in my family that I need to forgive. Bring to my mind someone in my family that I need to forgive. And then another prayer, God, bring to my mind someone in my family I need to go and ask their forgiveness. Bring to my mind someone in my family that I need to go and ask their forgiveness. Heavenly Father, we can, we can only have this conversation today because of what you've done for us through Christ on the cross. Any kind of forgiveness in our family relationships is only possible because of the forgiveness that you purchased for us through the death of your son and his resurrection, conquering sin and death and the devil. And then, Lord, you just want us to follow in your footsteps and be people of forgiveness. Would you give us courage to take a baby step toward forgiveness today, maybe that first step of forgiveness with, with the will, to make that list and pray through it and then tear it up and throw it away. And then, God, would you heal our hearts? Some of us, God, are here. We've got 40, 50 years of unresolved hurt and bitterness and seeds have been planted and roots have spread and it's grown up to cause trouble and defile many and Lord, I, I just believe that you, you love us, you love our families. I also believe it's never too late, never too late for you to work a miracle of healing and reconciliation in our homes. And that's what we're here to pray for. We know that our human effort and our human will can't accomplish it. So we pray for that now in the name of Jesus, amen.